Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Greetings. And welcome to episode 57 here. I am excited to share with you a guest who can help you tackle a tricky question, which is, is it time for me to to move on, to leave my current role in my job here? Or is there something else that could be done in terms of an optimal response? And she comes well recommended from multiple sources, including Susan Roan from episode nine and my buddy Cliff. Her name is Jenny Blake, and she has some excellent credentials and experience and years and years thinking about this stuff. So you're going to learn one, when and how to make a pivot move in your career, two, the three E's of piloting something new within your career, and three, how to reinvent your role right where you are. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to things mentioned on this conversation, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep57. So here's a bit about Jenny. Jenny Blake is a career and business strategist and international speaker who helps people move beyond burnout and create sustainable careers they love. She's the co-creator of Google's Career Guru program, host of the Pivot podcast, and author of the book Pivot, The Only Move That Matters Is Your Next One, which released yesterday. That's right, hot off the presses, and here's Jenny. Jenny, thanks so much for appearing on the How to Be Awesome About Your Job podcast. Thank you for having me, Pete. It's an honor. Now, I understand you're going on safari shortly. What's the story there? This is a long time bucket list item. My mom and I have been talking about for many years. This to me feels like a once in a lifetime thing. And we kept batting the idea around, but there was never a good time to get all the way to Africa, pay all the money, take all the time off the grid. And finally, this year, we just decided, you know what? When is there ever a good time? YOLO, if you will. I will. <laughs> my grandma, I taught my grandma the word YOLO, you only live once. And she told her friends who are in their mid-80s, and they started a group called the YOLOs. How cute is that? Oh, that is precious. So we have a, a group of 80-year-old ladies YOLOing. The YOLOs. Yep, and I'm an honorary <laughs> member. So my mom and I are YOLOing our way to Tanzania to do a safari, and I cannot wait. Oh, that's so cool. Well, I'm sure you'll have some some fun photos on your associated uh, social media accounts, or maybe you won't. Maybe you'll be totally unplugged, and that's a good way to go, too. Thanks. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to unplug while I'm there. Maybe when I'm back, I'll pick a select few. Yeah, then make us all jealous. <laughs> I'll try not to. Now, this is an exciting time here. This episode's releasing on your here in September, in which it's new, it's fresh, pivot it's out. Sort of, could you share with us a little bit, what's the story behind the the Pivot uh, book movement ethos? This book is an answer to the question, what's next? I wrote the book I wish I had so many times when I kept hitting what felt like a midlife or a quarter life crisis. When I realized that it kind of happened to me when I was 20, when I was 24, when I was 27, mm. when I was 29. And I, I thought, you know what? There's one of two things happening here. One, either there's something totally wrong with me and I'm never going to be happy. Or two, this midlife or quarter life crisis feeling of trying to answer the question, what's next and find more meaning and purpose in our work. It's accelerating because of all the changes in our economy and the pace of innovation. Maybe we're all having to answer this question, what's next, more often. And as I started studying this and talking to friends and working on the book, that 
absolutely proved to be true. And in fact, as I was working on Pivot, from the time I first interviewed people to a year to a year and a half later, when I went to fact check, almost no one had stayed in the same place. Oh, wow. And that to me was proof in point of what it means to be agile in today's economy and what it means to see pivots as a natural part of our work lives and not a crisis to be solved. So the reason this book is called Pivot is that it's a natural methodical shift from what's already working, not a 180 in a totally new and overwhelming panic-inducing direction. Oh, that's that's so great. And I think the, the title is excellent. A pivot makes me think of Eric Ries and Lean Startup and, and that sort of thing. It's not so much, indeed, like you said, we're not doing a totally new thing, but we're, we're keeping what matters and what's core and then making a, a bit of a shift. So can you tell us a little bit, I loved your your book, Bullet Points. Yeah, so I'm just going to dig right into, can you tell us a little bit about running small experiments, again, lean startup style, to determine sort of your, your next career steps? How does that sort of work? Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up Lean Startup because his book was a big inspiration. He has a chapter on pivoting, But what I noticed was, one, how can people be as agile as startups? And two, we talk about, we hear about pivoting all the time in business and especially Silicon Valley. But how? How do you actually pivot? What are And then also, we traditionally talk about pivoting. It's plan B. The company is about to collapse. The business plan Mm. is failing. Time to pivot and do something different. YouTube used to be a video dating site. Twitter used to be a podcasting service. But in our careers, pivot is the new normal. It's not just going to be about plan B anymore. It's about proactively looking. And so the pivot method, what the book is based on is a four-stage method. Plant, double down, like think of a basketball player. One foot is planted and grounded while the other looks for passing options. So the first step, plant. Look at what is already working. That's the biggest leverage that you have. Then from those resources, scan for new opportunities. And then Pete, what you just mentioned is the third stage, pilot. Take the pressure off of having to have the answer right up front and run small career experiments to test what's next. What small experiments will have low risk but high potential upside? And I say a good pilot fits the three E's. Do you enjoy this thing? Can you expand? Is there room in the market? And can you become an expert at it? Do you even want to? So a good pilot should test those three things, ideally. And so in practice, I love the idea of running a small career experiment. It sounds cool and scientific and data oriented. I'm into all that sort of stuff. So, but what might that look like in practice? How does one actually conduct a a small experiment? It could mean taking a class. If you work at a company, it could mean taking on a project outside of your core role. At Google, we called these 10 and 20% projects. And actually, I helped create a coaching program as a 10% project that later When a career development team was created, which didn't exist at the time, I got a job on that team as my full-time role because I had done this small career pilot. If someone's running their own business, it might mean testing a new service or pricing model or even a new type of client before scrapping everything else in the business. It's running new, thinking of new projects. Maybe for someone else, a pilot is a hobby. I mean, a pilot could be learning Italian or tango dancing. So pilots, can they don't all have to be so serious. They can be small action steps. These are some tiny pilots, but schedule lunch with a potential mentor or someone who's farther ahead than you in your field. Any small thing that moves the game, if we're using basketball, moves the game forward. 
Okay, so I'm, I'm hearing you there. You're doing a little something, and then you're learning from that something, and that informs where you go next. And if you determine that you you like that direction, and the experiment is returning some interesting data that you'd like to pursue further, can you talk to us a little bit about how you go about taking some of those smart risks? Once you've piloted, and think of a TV pilot. There's one episode filmed, then they test it with audiences and see if the network wants to pick up for a whole season. Same thing with your own pilots. If you use the three E's and you say, yes, I just did this thing with 10% of my time, whether employed or self-employed. Yes, I enjoyed it. Yes, I love doing it and I want to become better at it. And yes, people want this from me. There's either room in the company for this or there's room in the market if you're self-employed. Then the smart risk comes in. And the reason it's a smart risk and not a blind leap is that you double down on that pilot. So emphasizing the first stage of the pivot method, again, is double down on what's working. So now that you've tested with 10%, you are can be more confident investing more resources, time, energy, or money into expanding this as a bigger proportion. An example of someone within a company, I just had a coaching client who was thinking about leaving and she wanted to do coach training and become a career coach. And as a result of our conversation, she pitched a role within her company to become an in-house career coach. And no, there wasn't an open role, but they were open to it. And lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, if that's now her full-time job. Oh, that is exciting. And I, I like that a lot because I think sometimes we think that we're trapped and it is all or nothing in terms of I'm in this role and I don't like it. I'm in this company and I don't like it. Therefore, I have to, it's like default knee-jerk reaction look for something else. But sometimes it very well, there exist opportunities to reinvent what you're doing right where you are. Absolutely. Yes. And that's the whole key. The biggest mistake that I made, my very short version of the story when I left Google, when my first book, Life After College, was coming out in 2011. First of all, that was a really scary thing to do. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't the scariest because a year and a half later, here I was again, wondering what's next. And this time I didn't have a paycheck to fund that exploration. I had become the girl who left Google and the girl who left college. But who was I? Who am I? What am I moving toward? What how, what positive message can I send? How can I create an impact, a positive impact in people's lives? And it was really stressful because I paused most of my business activities. I didn't I was having a lot of personal challenges at the time as well. And so I watched my bank accounts dwindle all mm -hmm. the way to zero to the point where I didn't know how I was going to pay the rent in two weeks. And the biggest mistake that I made was not starting from what was already working, what was right under my feet, as you just said. Okay. Well, no, I, I can resonate with, with that message or that experience of, oh, wow, I don't have any money. <laughs> Whoops. All of a sudden. And thankfully, uh, each of us have, have gotten on our feet and things have worked out and people are resonating with what we have to, to share. So glad to hear it, that you're, you're up and moving and, and on your way. So shifting gears a little bit, there's one particular topic I was digging into in your book and I enjoyed uh, checking out the charts and stuff. It reminded me of some Stephen Covey, except kind of fresher and hipper. Can you talk to us a little bit about the the high net growth concept versus the stagnation panic zone worlds and, and how to apply that in navigating career considerations? Sure. Well, first, thank you for the kind words. I These are kind of two concepts very related. One is that as I started to understand who was this person, who is this book for, but moreover, who is the type of person that 
is making changes more frequently and let's not shame and blame them as entitled millennials, which seems to be all the rage. I agree that some amount of job hopping is reckless. Okay. So I'm not saying at the extreme cases, but the type of person that will resonate with this, I call them high net growth individuals. Because we know people who are high net worth, they optimize for earning money and accumulating wealth. People who are high net growth often will take a pay cut, bootstrap a business, move horizontally within an organization in order to emphasize their learning and growth. And for them, stagnation is death. For them, boredom is physically uncomfortable. And this isn't about them being entitled. It's actually that they, once their needs for growth are being met, they turn toward meaning and impact. And I call them impactors for short, because ultimately they don't just want to grow for the sake of growth. They want to know that the work they're doing is having an impact on their teams, their clients, on society as a whole. And so instead of shaming and blaming them, these people are smart because they know that other jobs are getting automated and outsourced. And so if they're not making an impact, they should be looking for something else. And and so uh, part, one thing for impactors is that I, I describe what you described, Peter, four operating zones. I call it the riskometer. How are you currently showing up in your career in terms of what opportunities you're pursuing? Some of you listening may be in your comfort zone. Works fine. For those who are unhappy at work, it starts as a dull boredom, but then it, sometimes it gets physically uncomfortable and your body starts screaming at you to make a change. I had one friend who had panic attacks every mm. time she got off the subway on her way to work. And her, it was her body saying, I need you to leave right now. You, we've, we've overcooked this <laughs> steak. You know, I talk about diminishing returns in the book. That's definitely a, a signal for that. Ideally, if you're an impactor, you're in your stretch zone. You have a sense of challenge, adventure, adrenaline, some amount of uncertainty, but you feel stretched and edgy. Mm -hmm. But if you stretch too far, you try to make a pivot that is too sharp, too far from what you're doing now, it can send you into your panic zone. So some of you listening might, if I said to you, quit your job tomorrow, it's all the rage, all the, all the cool <laughs> kids online are doing it, which did sweep the blogosphere a few years ago. If that sends you into a panic and you feel paralyzed, it's not the right move. It's too sharp of a turn and look for smaller pilots to keep you in your stretch zone, but also move you forward. Oh, that's, that's good. I, I like that. And I think I've been in all of those places myself uh, reflecting and even in the same role, yeah, working, consulting at Bain. It's like, oh, there's some jobs. It's like, oh, this is this is kind of easy. Do you, do you really need someone with a college degree to do this? And then other days, like maybe the very next day, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm in over my head. Help, please. So Totally. And it is really dynamic. I'm glad you said that, Pete, because certainly for impactors who are challenging themselves and in a stretch zone, yeah, it could very easily toggle into panic and back and panic and back. And some of that's exciting too. Or, or maybe, um, someone's lower in the zones and they're kind of in comfort stagnation, comfort stagnation. Do I stay? Do I go? Do I stay? Do I go? And that's again where the pilots can be helpful to at least test your hypotheses about what's next. I have an, an essay in the book about a pivot paradox of is the grass really greener on mm-hmm. the other side? And the thing is, one patch, one small pilot doesn't always tell you about the whole plot of land. Right. So if we switch metaphors for a moment using a bakery, one piece of cake tells you how the cake tastes, but one piece of cake doesn't tell you how the bakery 
Mm-hmm. runs. And so a side hustle earning $100 a month is like a piece of cake. It might not really inform how you're going to do as a full-time entrepreneur. So that's why it's important to steadily increase the pilots if you can. Oh, that's true. And and uh, with the metaphors, thinking about the grass, I mean, back in episode six, we had Arthur Woods, who started Imperative and talking a lot about purpose at work. And he, one of his nice little quotable gems there was that the grass is not so much always greener on the other side, so much as as where you water it, where you cultivate it, which could be right there at times. So I think that's that really is clicking for me. So very good. Well, I, I kind of wanted to, before I shift gears, because I want to hear, spending some time with the Google training and career development team, I'm sure you learned a ton about people and skills and development and learning and some patterns there. So I'd like to shift gears there in a second, but I imagine you may have another gem or two associated with career strategy and pivot we want to make sure we cover first. The biggest mistake I've talked about is not looking at what's working. And so let's Mm -hmm. unpack that for people just a little bit. Sure. When you plant the basketball player that has that plant foot that's so stable and rooted in a career sense, that has four parts. Your strengths, what are you really good at? Your day-to-day, what's already working in terms of if you're self-employed, what's bringing in revenue? If you work at a job, it's what are you enjoying the most? What's making the biggest impact? Finances, people who have more savings have a longer runway. They can Mm -hmm. afford to quit their job and not have anything for six months, whereas someone with no savings is on a tighter leash, if you will. They have a shorter pivot runway, Mm -hmm. so that's a factor. It's not always the deciding factor, but it is one. And then a really important piece that a lot of people skip is one-year vision. I don't believe in the five-year question, where do you see yourself in five years? Because given the pace of innovation, I think, who the hell knows? None Mm. of us really knows what the economic landscape is going to look like. And so instead, I find people have an easier time envisioning one year out, maybe two. If you're in a graduate school program and you know you graduate in two years, fine, go for it. But otherwise, one year from now, How do you want to feel? What does your ideal average day look like? What kind of impact are you making? If somebody gave you a thank you note, what would it say? If you got an award, what would it be for? If you were asked to give a TED Talk and you knew it would be seen by a million people, what would you say? And really go in depth about this one-year vision. Now, some people will say, I don't know. That's why I'm reading your book. Or, (laughs) you know, they'll come to me for coaching. Like, I don't know. That's why I hired you. And I find 100% of the time when I say to someone, just guess, just even if you don't know, start broad and then you can always narrow it down. So just start with your known variables and we'll come back to the unknown variables later in the pivot method. They know, you know, the answers are in you. You don't have to know the specifics of how you're going to get there. In fact, don't try and say that yet. But most people... I think do have a sense for what their ideal vision. And the reason sometimes people don't want to say it out loud or write it down is it can be scary. The second we say something we really want, our gremlins come rushing in saying, who do you think you are? You can't do that. You're too young. You're too old. You're too dumb. You're too smart. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, so we have to be willing to sit with those and stretch ourselves and say it anyway. Oh, I, I love that. Just guess, because I could imagine, I, I could just see, well, you tell me this is accurate. I'm imagining you with clients and you say, just guess. And they say, well, I mean, maybe I would. And then they just start 
launching yes. into super excited, rapid fire, just detailed description of what they think would be the coolest thing ever. You're like every time, <laughs> every time, there's not a time that doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> and or when I say there are two other questions, when I say, "What does your gut say?" And I say, "I don't know." Just close your eyes. What does your gut say? Boom, waterfall of answers. And if I say, "What else?" So if I say, what's your one-year vision? And they tell me the obvious stuff they've already thought of. What else? Mm -hmm. What else? What else? And I have one client who he'll say, Jenny, you've are, I don't know. I'm maxed out. And I say, well, you always come up with your most brilliant response once I ask it past that point. So I'm just going to let it hang there. Give me one more thing. And lo and behold, the the what else is the aha moment of the whole coaching session. (laughs) Oh, yes. That's so good. That's so good. Well, those are, those are powerful questions. Thank you for sharing there. So I want to touch, boy, time is flying here. I want to shift gears a little bit in here. So you had several good years at Google's training and career development team and Google's like legendary for great people. And so I would just love to get the chance to to mine your brain a little bit. What are some of the key takeaways you discovered when it comes to people, skills, learning, and development in that a pretty unique role of working with some of the sharpest people in the world? I feel so grateful. It was the best MBA I could have asked for. Yeah, I was at the company for five and a half years while it grew from 6,000 people to 36,000 people. And being in training and career development, I crossed paths with many people. I trained 1,000 people in my first few years at the company. And one of the things that I noticed and part of the later inspiration for the book was that these are, as you said, such smart, dynamic, kind, friendly, interesting people. Everyone was... You would have someone that went to Harvard, but also grew up raising chickens and knew yes. exactly how to <laughs> hatch a chicken egg. You know, <laughs> people were so varied in what they did. And so inevitably, a lot would hit plateaus a year or two in at the company, as I did myself. There was a point two mm. and a half years in where I was primarily building PowerPoint strategy decks, which maybe you can relate from your oh, time sure. consulting. I hated it. This was not my zone of genius. I'm not a great visual thinker. I loved being in front of the room or coaching, interacting with people. In any case, so many of us fault ourselves for hitting career plateaus and we think there's something wrong with me. And I certainly did. I felt like I'm at Google and I'm unhappy. What? I'm one of those entitled millennials that was never going to be happy because I'm at the dream job at the dream company and I still feel something is missing. So one of my big takeaways was these plateaus are totally natural and as to be expected if you're a high net growth individual. And so part of the purpose of calling it a pivot is that just to take the stigma out of it and it's a positive thing. It's pivot is the new normal. It's gender neutral. It's judgment neutral. And so if we can start using this language in the workplace, I think it will give people more freedom to say, I'm hitting a plateau. Hey, that's a good thing. It means I smashed it in my role and getting up to speed. So now what's next? And then that's totally okay. Whereas I think in my experience at Google, people were often afraid to tell their manager, I'm bored. I'm unhappy. You know, I'm Mm. looking elsewhere. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, I mean, not so good. They didn't feel comfortable, but uh, it's good that they were able to to make that leap there. So 
interesting. So part of it is just like the, the normalcy, the, the frequency with which it occurred that people just needed to, to make a shift after some time. And, and that's good, normal, sensible, and no need to stress it or, or, or judge about it and, and to, to make a switch. Any other observations associated with seeing super sharp people learning and acquiring skills? The hunger for learning is mm. great. I just did an interview with Kevin Kelly on my Pivot podcast, and he writes in his new book, The Inevitable, that we're all now in a perpetual newbie state. And we can experience this. Our phones, the whole operating system upgrades get pushed out, you know, every three to six months. Yes. Then our apps, the interface will change. So even when you think you know how to use, in let's say, the Google Calendar app, well, they'll refresh the whole in- interface, and then now you got to learn it again. And yeah. so the people who are the most successful, Google had a huge global training program. And they even have a program called G2G, which is Googlers teaching Googlers, which meant Mm. you didn't have to be anointed part of the training team in order to lead a training about something that you're interested in. And so that exchange of peer-to-peer information was not only good for the learners, but good for the trainers. So for anyone listening, if you have a skill and an expertise, well, once you're at a certain level you can then teach the material and in doing so, learn it even better. And I found it gave, that was a great example of a career pilot because not everybody wanted to be a full-time trainer. Mm-hmm. But if a, an engineer was able to teach Python one hour a week, it often gave them a sense of being able to connect with others and make an impact, even if they didn't want that to be their full-time role. Oh, I hear you. That's fascinating there. And with everything is changing around. And that reminds me, when I worked at Kmart, that was my first job, talk about careers. But I was working at Kmart, Pantry Pete, they called me. I was so funny how often I would get a customer and they would be angry at me and they would say, you moved everything around on me. And I think that that's an experience that, that I'm having as, as I see things change. And, and sometimes I think, oh, cool, finally about times. It's about time they, they fixed that or upgraded that in this way. And other times, I'm just kind of irritated because I liked it the way it was, and now it's different, and I am that a cranky customer complaining at the Kmart. Did you discover any sort of uh, themes or patterns associated with those who were more adaptable and, and quick to, to change and roll with things? Yeah, absolutely. And I think for some reason... Sometimes we hit these points where we think we're supposed to know. The guy at Kmart, that's such a great example. I can think about teaching my grandma how to use the iPhone that sometimes Mm -hmm. she gets frustrated. And I understand because she's learning so much from scratch. I think part of staying agile is saying, I'm willing to fumble through this. Pete, before we hit record, I was telling you, I still edit my podcast. I taught myself GarageBand. And yeah, in the beginning, I was bad at it. I didn't know the first thing. I had to Google everything. And it was guesswork. And it kind of Mm -hmm. in the beginning feels awkward. It takes twice as long. And it feels like you have a blindfold on with new software or new skills. And there is the levels of learning. So there's four levels of learning. And it follows a dip, which is that unconscious incompetence. Mm -hmm. You don't know what you don't know. Then you go into this dip, conscious incompetence. You're fully aware of how much you don't know. But as you start learning a new skill, you come into conscious competence. Think about the 16-year-old learning to drive. Mm -hmm. They got it, but they got to be vigilant. And then finally, unconscious competence. The new skill is integrated. So if we can just come to terms with the fact that we're going to go through this dip before we come out the other side stronger and better, cool. 
I think it can make those dips much more bearable. And again, not to be seen as a personal flaw or shortcoming, but a sign of progress. Oh, lovely. Thank you. Well, then, anything else you want to make sure that you share before we kind of shift gears into the fast faves? I think that's good for now. I'll let you know if I think of anything else. Okay, well, let's do it. Could you start us off by sharing a favorite quote, something that inspires you again and again? Joan Bays said, action is the antidote to despair. Mm. I love that. I turned it for myself. I say in the book, build first, courage second. Don't expect to feel courageous first. When you are making a big change, just start building. And then the courage cookies come down from the universe. Tasty. (laughs) How about a favorite study or piece of research you find yourself thinking about or citing often? One thing that surprised me the most working on Pivot was that we hear the statistic that the average employee tenure is now three to four years. That was not my experience working on the book. People, maybe I attract pivoty people, but... Whether by their choosing or by circumstance, people were pivoting more frequently than that. I would even say every two years, if not more frequently than that. I mean, I want to say a lot of people pivoted within the year I had interviewed them. And some, you know, worked at companies that got acquired and then they were fired or they got hired and poached for another company or they started their own business or they folded it. So that's the piece of research that I'm most curious about and that I feel is the most inaccurate at the moment. Now, of course, I was at Google five and a half years, but I pivoted internally to a different role, roles within that time. So even if someone's worked at the same company for a period of time, they're often pivoting within that. I see. Okay. And how about a favorite book? Favorite book, Anti-Fragile, Things That Gain from Disorder by Nassim Taleb. Oh, intriguing. Can you tell us just one or two sentences about that? Well, what I love is that he captures it in the subtitle of the book, which is that And he's very rigorous and he's in economics and a former stock trader. So he he has a really cool brain, but he's also great with language. And the whole premise, you know, it's the cliche, what doesn't kill you makes you Mm -hmm. stronger. But he really makes the case for anti-fragile organisms, things that aren't just resilient in chaos or, you know, like a tree is resilient. The wind blows and it stays standing, but it doesn't fundamentally change. Humans are anti-fragile. When something knocks us down, barring our death, we are much stronger on the other side and much more adept to handle adversity in the future. I just like that word, anti-fragile. Oh, it's a great it's, one. It's going to be in by mix now. Thank you. Totally. It inspired it. It inspired a lot of pivot, a lot of my thinking. So I was like, how do we, how do we be more anti, how do I be more anti-fragile? I was so rocked by the change process that I felt I was not very resilient at handling change. And so, yeah, the book really inspired me and a, a mindset shift for me. Very cool. And, and how about a favorite habit or personal practice of yours that's really boosted your effectiveness? Meditation, which I know can sound like, go eat your spinach, meditate daily. But I really think I did a podcast episode for my show on how meditation rewired my brain. I've been doing it for three years now. I aim for 20 minutes in the morning, but sometimes it's just 10. And I do, I feel calmer, happier, more focused, more strategic. I just, it has changed my life, truly, and made me more anti-fragile and more resilient. Oh, beautiful. And how about uh, maybe a fan favorite tidbit that you share that gets people nodding their heads, taking notes, retweeting, Kindle book highlighting? What are some of those gems that you contribute that folks tend to quote? So something from my own work? Right. Oh, well, one of, I think one quotable is your body is your business. 
that I recognized once I became self-employed that I'm my own employee. And if I'm tired or sleep deprived or hungover or eating sugary foods and I'm operating at 50%, well, then so is my business. And that statistic was unacceptable to me. (laughs) So after I, you know, at a big company like Google, if you're having an off day, bad day is absorbed into the other 30 or 60,000 people that work at the company. So I really, I really pay a lot of attention to sleep, my schedule, working out, connecting with friends. I, I treat these as equal priorities to the work itself because I know that they serve the work in the end. And I'm far more strategic and more efficient when I work in my best energy windows yes. than when I try and force myself to do things that are ultimately going to lead to burnout. Um, indeed. And what's the best way to find you? If folks want to learn more, would you point them to your, your website or Twitter or where should they start? Sure. Well, Pete, I'm happy to offer for your listeners. I'll put up a special page on the Pivot website. Ooh. If you go to pivotmethod.com slash awesome, I'll include my ideal day Mad Lib exercise, which is a really fun, it's like five pages of a Mad Lib to envision what your ideal day looks like. And so I'll share that on pivotmethod.com slash awesome. And I'm also at jennyblake.me. We have career pathfinder course for people who do want to make a change, pivot a whole amazing team of pivot coaches. So that's all at pivotmethod.com. And the book is on Amazon and wherever books are sold. And I'm on Twitter at jenny underscore Blake. Oh, perfect. And do you have a, thanks for the special bonus. I mean, that's, uh, sure. that's, uh, that's pretty cool. I feel, I feel so legit. <laughs> <laughs> and any maybe favorite, uh, final challenge or call to action for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? There are two questions I always like to ask myself. And I think you can ask yourself really every week, every day, or for every project. And that is what is one small next step? that you can take in the next week? And what is one next step that would make the biggest impact? Yes, thank you. Well, Jenny, this has been such a treat. Thank you so much for this. And I wish you tons of luck with this book release week and, and all the, the insanity and hopefully fun opportunities that emerge there and, and on down the road. Thank you so much, Pete. And huge thanks to everybody for listening. Oh, that's so handy. And I really think that question is is pretty powerful in terms of what is the one next step that would make the biggest impact? So good to ponder that and stay focused, not get distracted by all the other stuff that could happen. So once again, to check out the show notes, the transcript, the links to things mentioned, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep57. And if you've not yet pushed the subscribe button, I would humbly request you do so. So you don't miss cool folks like our next guest, John Polstra, the polecat himself, and he has some expertise on making meetings more manageable and less miserable. So if you're into that kind of thing, I hope you'll stick around. Until then, peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 